All right, church, we come now in our worship of God together to the preaching of his word this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Let's turn there together this morning. And we're going to call upon the name of the Lord together again as a church. Worship God in prayer and ask for his help this morning. Let's do that now. Let's pray. Father, we just sang to you that you are the uncreated God. And you are, Lord. Without beginning, without end, God, all things were made by you and all things were made for you. And so we come to you this morning, Lord. You are our source. You're the fountain, God. You're the one from whom we receive every good thing and every blessing in this world. God, we pray that as we draw near to you this morning, that you would draw near to us and that you would bless us with your word. God, we ask to be strengthened this morning for our journey. Strengthen us to live in this world for your glory. God, we pray that you would enlighten our understanding today. Lord, help us to understand your ways, understand your word. Lord, we pray that you would incline our hearts this morning to obedience Deliver us from being mere hearers of your word. God, make us doers of your word. Give us strong desires to act upon your word. And Lord, we pray that you would fill our hearts with wonder and with worship. Be exalted, we pray, in the midst of your people. Lord, come now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, church, we're going to pick up this morning in our study of Deuteronomy together. We are in Deuteronomy chapter 23, and we're going to start in verse 15 together this morning. We have a large chunk of scripture that we're going to read together, and so I want to invite you, if you're able to do so, I want to invite you to stand, and, and we're going to read God's word together as the church this morning. Thus says the Lord, this is verse 15, <clears throat> you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. None of the daughters of Israel shall be a cult prostitute, and none of the sons of Israel shall be a cult prostitute. You shall not bring the fee of a prostitute or the wages of a dog into the house of the Lord your God in payment for any vow, for both of these are an abomination to the Lord your God. You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but you may not charge your brother interest that the Lord your God may bless you and all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin." But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what is past your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you shall eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish. But you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. Chapter 24. When a man takes a wife and marries her, <clears throat> if then she finds no favor in his eyes, 
because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. And you, you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable to any public duty. He shall be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge. <coughs> for that would be taking a life in pledge. If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel <coughs> and he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. <coughs> Take care in the case of leprous disease to be careful to do according to all that the Levitical priest shall direct you as I commanded them. So you shall be careful to do. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect this pledge. You shall stand outside and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you, and it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who is in the land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry out against you, to the Lord, and you be guilty of sin. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, <coughs> nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. You shall not pervert the justice due the sojourner or the fatherless or take a widow's garment in pledge, but you shall remember that you are a slave in Egypt. And that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you and all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterward. <coughs> it shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. You may be seated this morning. In 1963, Martin Luther King Jr. said these words about our state in his famous I Have a Dream speech. He says this, I have a dream that one day even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, <coughs> sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. Now those words and words like it have been an inspiration to many because we find deep within us this longing for the ideal human society where all the pain and the tears of the world that we live in are gone. And it's not only Martin Luther King Jr. 
Many secular prophets, especially political prophets, are constantly promising us the arrival of the ideal utopian age where there's no more suffering. However, almost never are these political longings connected to the God-ordained means of bringing about that ideal human society, law-keeping, keeping the law of God. That won't fill up stadiums today. That won't sell out political rallies today. You know what we need to do? We need to keep the law of God in this nation. And so what we're constantly hearing in our world is this longing for the ideal utopia without God. That's who we are in this world. We are a godless world and we live in a godless age. We want God's blessing, but we want God's blessing without God, pushing God out. And what the law of God does is God's law reveals to us the ideal. It reveals to us what righteousness really looks like in God's world. And we have to come to realize that what we don't need is messianic political figures preaching to us their best ideas. We don't need man-made righteousness with man-made rules. What we really need is God's righteousness according to God's law in God's world. And so this is what we're going to press into together this morning. We find ourselves again in Deuteronomy. You may have noticed this when we started reading. We're in the middle of what has been called a miscellaneous section in this letter. And you may have noticed that. Like, what does that law have to do with that law have to do with that law? Those titles in your English Bible tell you that Bible scholars have no idea. So the best they can come up with it is this is miscellaneous. These are miscellaneous laws. Now, I think this is a good time to remind us that the law of God has always been a unit. It's, it's a whole thing. And the approach to the law of God is never supposed to be this piecemeal approach of I'll keep this, I'll keep this, I won't keep this, I won't keep this. It's a unit. It's a whole. In fact, James 2 verse 10 tells us that if, theoretically, if you were to keep the whole law of God and fail in one point of it, James says you become guilty of the whole thing. You become indicted as a lawbreaker. And so what we have in Deuteronomy is Moses is preaching this law to that second generation who's about to go into the promised land. And as they come to these miscellaneous laws, they're not, as, they're not free to do what we so often do with these portions of Scripture. Is to side the, set those to the side and let's focus on the, the central stuff, the more important stuff. They're not free to do that because God's law is a unit. It's a whole. And in fact, these miscellaneous laws in chapter 23 and 24 are going to be important. For Israel to remember because if they fail to do these laws, if they fail to do the law of God, God is going to bring a curse upon this nation and he's threatened them throughout this book that he's going to remove them from the land that he's giving to them. Whereas if they obey these laws, even these miscellaneous laws in our section, look at verse 13 this morning. Moses says, it's going to be righteousness for you before the Lord. It's going to be righteousness to you before the Lord. And so God's law, including this section of Deuteronomy, it, portray, it portrays for us what a society of righteousness truly looks like in God's world. This is what it looks like. Okay, this is God's revelation, God's standards of what God's righteousness looks like in this world. And we could categorize these miscellaneous laws under three headings. Let me give them to you this morning if you're taking notes. Number one, righteousness looks like compassion for the needy. It looks like compassion for the needy. You see many laws here that fall under 
that heading. Number two, righteousness looks like purity before God. Holiness before God. Separating from sin. And then number three, righteousness looks like justice for all. Judicial justice for everybody. So that's where we're headed this morning. We're going to talk about God's law requiring compassion. We're going to talk about God's law requiring purity. And we're going to talk about God's law requiring justice in God's world. We'll start with number one. These commands in this miscellaneous section that require compassion for the needy. And there are several of these. Let's start in chapter 23, verse 15. We find this law at the very beginning. We find this law that required Israel to show compassion to an escaped slave. And most likely what's going on here is this is the slave of a foreigner in a foreign land that has escaped their master, entered into the borders of Israel... And God is requiring in his law that this runaway slave find a refuge in the midst of his people. The slave is given freedom to choose to live wherever he desires in the land. Now, one interesting thing is this is the exact opposite of what we find in other ancient Near Eastern law codes. For example... The Code of Hammurabi, which is an ancient law code, it requires the death penalty for the one who harbors a runaway slave. But in God's law, that refugee slave is to find a refuge in Israel. This is mandate. This is mercy from God for these slaves. You see another law of compassion in verse 19. You have this law that requires Israel to give these interest-free loans to any poor brother in need. And we've already talked about this some as we've studied this book together. These interest-free loans to the needy. Now, a distinction is made in verses 19 and 20 between a brother and a foreigner. You can't do this to a brother, charge interest, you can do this to a foreigner. That distinction is made because our obligations toward those inside the covenant community and those outside the covenant community are different, and they've always been different. And just by way of reminder, these were loans to alleviate poverty, okay? Nobody, was, nobody can claim these verses as biblical justification to get you know, your million-dollar interest-free loan to start your business. Okay, these are not commercial loans. They are specifically designed to alleviate poverty in Israel. And interest was forbidden for these types of loans. And it makes sense if you understand what the nature of the loan is for. If the nature of the loan is to alleviate poverty, then stacking interest on top of the loan is counterproductive. You're, not, you're trying to help this person out of poverty. And so God says, don't charge your brother interest. And so we, what we find here, and we don't often think about this category of generosity, what we find here is that these types of loans and this type of lending is a form of generosity in Israel. And so according to God's law, not only the slave, but also the poor find provision for their needs in this land. Next, we have several laws in chapter 24 dealing with regulations on collateral that's received for these loans, these interest-free loans to the poor. 24 verse 6, you see a prohibition about taking someone's millstone. If you give a loan, Moses says, don't take their mill, don't take their upper millstone in a pledge. Why? Well, the millstone was used in the ancient world to grind grain into flour, which was used to make daily bread. And so if you give a loan to the poor and take their millstone, you are giving them a loan and then you are taking away their 
daily bread. You're taking away their means of livelihood. And God's law says don't do this. Show compassion to the needy. Don't do that. In verse 17, you have another similar prohibition. And in verse 17, he says, don't take the widow's garment in a pledge. Same idea here. Same idea. This would also be taking away what was necessary for their livelihood. Look at verse 10 in chapter 24. You find more regulations on this collateral, these these collateral for loans. In verse 10, you find out that the lender wasn't free to do whatever he wanted. He couldn't just barge into a poor man's house and take his stuff and say, I'll take that as collateral, that as collateral. He couldn't do that. He couldn't enter the house. And also, he was required, if the man was poor, he was required to return that collateral at sunset every day, lest he be guilty of sin, lest that poor man cry out to the Lord and the rich man be guilty of sin. That same compassion is seen also in verses 14 and 15 where Moses requires the poor to be compensated on the same day that they work. They work, pay them on the same day. Verse 15 says, for he is poor and he counts on it. Okay? Works the same day. You can't wait three days because he needs that money now. This is God's law requiring compassion and mercy for those who are in need. Now, what we have full in chapter 23 and 24 is we have mercy mandated. It's not, hey, if you feel led, it's mandates for the people of God. Mercy, mercy is not icing on the cake. Mercy is part of everyday faithfulness to Yahweh and Israel. They are mandates. They are laws in this nation. You see it again, the same impulse in the gleaning laws. They show up twice, once in chapter 23 and and once again in chapter 24. Chapter 23, verse 24, you have provision made for anyone who is hungry. And basically the law is this. If you're hungry and you're walking through a field, you can take a handful and take a bite of anything you like. Grapes, grain. If you're hungry... You can have what you need to meet your provision. You can have it, okay? But what you can't do is take out your backpack and load your backpack full of your neighbor's grapes. And what you can't do is walk through your neighbor's field with a sickle in your hand and start harvesting your neighbor's grain. And so what this provision is, it's about needs, not greeds. Okay? It's about re- meeting real needs in this nation. So nobody can, can look at this law in chapter 23, uh, verse 24, and back their pickup truck to their neighbor's vegetable garden and load the wagon with all the watermelons, all the tomatoes, and say, just, just, you know, just you know, taking my uh, provision from God's law. You couldn't do that. Okay? Couldn't do that. Now, how unique is this? I want you to think about that for just a minute. The uniqueness of the biblical worldview, the uniqueness of what God calls his people to in this world. And I was thinking about it in this way. Usually in secular politics, you are either for one thing or the other. Okay? You are either on the, on, on the right hand, you are either for um, uh, property rights being preserved. And that's what you're about, you know. Uh, we're not we're not communist here. We're, you know, uh, uh, my stuff is my stuff, and and property rights, you know, are, are need to be preserved. And, and then on the other hand, on the left hand, there are those who are for these mandates of mercy to the poor. We got we got to make sure this is codified. We got to make sure this is done. And almost never do you see people. Uh, uh, blend those two things. And I want you to notice here that God's law does. Okay? That mercy is mandated for the people of God, but not in such a way that property rights are obscured. Okay? You can have what you need, God's law says, but do not take your neighbor's stuff, God's same law says. That's absolutely unique in this world. 
Now you see the same idea in chapter 24, beginning in verse 19, these gleaning laws, again. And what the gleaning laws basically are is the crops are not stripped absolutely bare. You don't get every last you know, kernel of corn uh, from your corn crop. Okay, For the purpose of the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow. And in that last paragraph, he says that three times. For the purpose of the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. Everybody's going to share in God's blessing on this land. And so all these laws are compassionate laws. They're great mercy to the needy. And this fruitful land that God's going to bring his people into, he's going to bless this land. The slave's going to find refuge there. The poor, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, the hungry, they're going to find provision there. All are going to share in God's blessing upon this land. Now, as we read the whole Bible, we learn that this theme of compassion to the needy is very, very near to the heart of God. It's not an Old Testament thing or a New Testament thing. It runs through the whole canon of Scripture. Just read to you two verses here. Proverbs 19 verse 17 says this, Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. That is not the only place the Bible draws this straight line connection between how you act to the poor is how you act to God. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. When Paul began to preach the gospel to the nations, he was instructed by the church in Jerusalem with these words in Galatians chapter 2, verse 10. He said, only they asked us to remember the poor. It has been a foundation stone from the very beginning of the proclamation of the Christian gospel to not let these needy ones be cast to the side. God's people are those who are merciful to the needy. God's people in every age have been called to tangibly care for the poor. And I say tangibly because it's not just feel like really warm thoughts. It's meet their needs. Show them mercy. Show mercy to the needy. So near to the heart of God is compassion to the needy that there's an entire office in the New Testament church called the Office of Deacon that function as ministers of mercy among the people of God to make sure that there's not any needy among us. Listen to this in James chapter 1. Verse 27, he calls this compassion to the needy one of two defining marks of true religion. Number one, he says it's caring for orphans and widows. And number two, he says it's staying unspotted from the world. That's real religion. That's true religion. Caring for orphans and widows, staying unspotted from the world. Now, I think that's interesting that those two things follow our first two categories in Deuteronomy 23 and 24 compassion to the needy and purity before God. Next, we see these commands for purity among the people of God. And you see this in, in chapter 23, verse 17. With these laws forbidding prostitution, any dealings with prostitution in Israel. Whether male prostitution or female prostitution, both are said to be an abomination to the Lord. That's what sexual immorality is. It's not an oops. It's not a messed up. It's an abomination to God. God hates sexual sin. Therefore, God calls his people to separate from sexual sin. Now, in the ancient world, prostitution was closely connected to false religion, which is why he says cult prostitute here. They would serve in 
these temples that were erected for these fertility gods and fertility goddesses. And they would go practice these sexually immoral deeds to try to receive the blessing of the fertility gods. And so in this command, God is calling not only for separation from sexual immorality, he's also calling for separation from false religion. In every age, God's people have been called to repent of sin. We are those who have repented of our sin and continue to repent of our sin. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 6 Verse 17, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you. You see these purity laws again. Chapter 23, verse 21, Israel is commanded to keep their vows to God. Godliness has always been marked in this way. Your yes is your yes, your no is your no. Part of your your speech is part of your integrity. God is your king. Verse 23, Moses says, You shall be careful to do what is passed from your lips. Your words are weighty. They ought to be weighty. You see purity again in in chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, in this command to guard the purity of marriage. Now there has been... Lots of ink spilled on this particular passage, those four verses. I want to try to cover this very quickly. In Matthew 19, Jesus actually deals directly with Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. And he does this in Matthew 19 in this interchange between Christ and the Pharisees. And so what you have in that chapter are the Pharisees in Matthew 19. They approach our Savior and they basically ask him two questions about this text. Number one, they say, is it lawful to divorce for any reason? And then the second question they ask Jesus is sort of a gotcha question. of Why then did Moses command us to write a certificate of divorce? And their questions that they ask Christ show us how this law had been misunderstood. And what you have here is this phrase in chapter 24, verse 1. ESV translates it as some indecency was found in this wife and so the husband divorces her. That phrase is the Hebrew word erwat debar. And it describes some serious indiscretion is found in this wife and the husband divorces her. We don't know exactly what that word means, but we do know this. It was not adultery. Okay, Chapter 24, 24 verse 1 is not describing adultery was found in her. Therefore, her husband divorced her. And we know that because the penalty for adultery and the law of Moses is the death penalty, not divorce. It doesn't matter if you're betrothed or the marriage is consummated. If you commit adultery in Israel, the penalty, according to Moses, is the death penalty, not divorce. By the time that Jesus begins to engage these Jewish leaders, the Pharisees had turned that phrase, the Erwat Debar, into a license to divorce for any reason. Okay, that phrase, some indecency was found in her, was understood to be you know, wide enough to whatever you wanted, you could divorce your wife for. In fact, some of the rabbinic writings talk about uh, grounds for divorce being your wife burning your dinner. Okay? If your wife burns your dinner, divorce her. Okay? And, and this is one of the reasons Jesus indicts that generation as an adulterous generation, is this flippancy of breaking the marriage covenant. Okay? It doesn't mean anything. So Jesus basically answers their question, is it lawful to divorce for any reason? And Jesus basically says this, no, it is not lawful to divorce for any reason you want. Okay, That's what Jesus basically says in Matthew 19. And the Pharisees respond with this question, 
if what you're saying is true, Jesus, why then did Moses command us to write a certificate of divorce? To which Jesus responds, Moses didn't command you to write a certificate of divorce. He permitted you to write a certificate of divorce. Moses, Jesus points out, Moses did not require you to divorce your wife. The, lo- the law of Moses permitted you to divorce your wife. And so what we find here is God, God's law. How many times have we seen this? You have regulations about slavery, regulations about multiple wives in the law of Moses, regulations about divorce. And when those regulations are, are showing up in God's law, it's not necessarily that God is commanding these things or even sometimes condoning these things. Jesus says Moses permitted it, but from the beginning, Jesus says it was not so. And so the Pharisees' questions that they asked Jesus is an amazing example of missing the point. Why? Because Deuteronomy 24 is not even about divorce. It's about remarriage. The commandment is about remarriage. It is not even about divorce as part of the circumstance but the command that Moses gives here is this, if this is your circumstance, husband has put away his wife for this Urwat the bar, and she marries somebody else, you can't meet, remarry her, Moses says. And so, what we have here is Jesus exegeting Moses. Jesus unpacking the true meaning of Deuteronomy 24. The law forbids the original husband from remarrying his wife after she had married another man. Why? Because the law of Moses and the teaching of Jesus viewed divorce and remarriage as an act of adultery. Unless the divorce was on the grounds of sexual infidelity. Under the old covenant, Sexual immorality in marriage was dealt with by the death penalty. Under the new covenant, it can be dealt with by a lawful divorce. And so what this law reminds us in Deuteronomy 24 is that marriage is a holy institution. And God's people should guard the holiness of this institution. The book of Hebrews calls us to take up that charge to guard marriage. It says this, Hebrews 13, 4. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So God's people are to live lives of compassion. God's people are to live lives of purity in this world. And then lastly, we see these commands that deal with requiring judicial justice for everybody in the land. And here we find two simple judicial principles. And if you grab a hold of them, they'll change a human society. And these principles are, 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 are simply this. Number one, punish the guilty. That's what your judges should do. They should punish the guilty. Told you it was simple. Number two... Don't punish the innocent. Punish the guilty, number one, but don't punish the innocent, number two. Those are the two principles we see in these chapters. Look at verse 7, chapter 24, verse 7. You'll notice that the death penalty is required for the one guilty of kidnapping. God says this is righteousness in the land. If you commit this crime, purge that evil one from you're missed. So what we have here, that's the principle. Punish the guilty. You cannot have a just, human, utopian society without punishing criminals, including applying the death penalty for appropriate crimes. It's part of righteousness. Okay. And then you see the other principle in this same chapter, verse, verse 16, chapter 24, 24 verse 16, you see the death penalty is never to be applied in an unjust way. You say, what do you mean? Well, fathers are not to be executed for the sins of their children. And every father says, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. 
and the counterpart. Children are not to be executed for the sins of their fathers. And every kid in the room says, yep, that also sounds like a good idea. Biblical justice is you die for your own sins. Okay, Punish the guilty, but do not punish the innocent. Side note, one of the reasons that no Christian should ever fall for this argument to tolerate an abortion in the case of a rape causing a pregnancy. One of the reasons that we should never tolerate uh, as this being a so-called exception, okay, that we are against abortion except in this case is because we believe this principle. Punish the guilty, don't punish the innocent. In other words, Christians believe in executing criminals. Christians do not believe in executing criminals' children. We seek God's justice, not man-made, pseudo-worldly justice. Punish the guilty. Do not punish the innocent. Now, I want you to think about a human society, uh, the scope that these laws cover. They cover mercy. They cover purity. They cover the law courts and and the whole judicial world and the type of society. Try to envision the type of society that is envisioned here. A society where the poor and needy are truly cared for, not pseudo cared for, but truly cared for. A society where the citizens walk in true holiness and purity before God. A society where, where... Criminals and and crimes are punished justly and not unjustly. And this is the ideal that the law of God holds out for us. This is the righteous standards of God for for his people. Now as we come to a passage like this, it is plain to us that we are no longer under Israel's covenant. And and, and one of the... uh, uh, easiest ways to see that is 24 verse 8 you have ceremonial law here and Levitical priest here mentioned you're saying we can't even obey this stuff because that that covenant has been put away yet one of the most helpful things for us to do as New Testament Christians from the perspective of the new covenant is to ask this question what do the laws of Israel teach us about Israel's God what are the laws of Israel teach us about Israel's God. In other words, the law of God reveals the nature of the lawgiver. It reveals what God is like. And from these laws, we can say at least three things. What is God like? Well, look at his laws. And you have to conclude, man, this God is compassionate. This God is merciful. That's who this God is. He is the God who, man, he sees those in need. You see this in the laws of the escaped slave, the laws of gleaning, the laws of protecting the poor. Man, this God sees their plight. It might be going past everybody else, but he sees it, and he cares for the needy, and he provides for that need. This God is merciful. This is who our God is. He is merciful. He is compassionate. Psalm 68 says this about God. He is father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. And so if you ever had that question, man, what is God really like? One of the things that should come racing into your mind is God is merciful. God is not detached from the needs of this world. God is merciful. From these laws, you could also learn that God is pure. He's holy. You see this in the call to sexual purity, the call uh, uh, to separate from false religion, the call to marital faithfulness, marital holiness. Man, this God doesn't play games with sin. This God is pure. He's holy. And this is who God is. In fact, 1 John chapter 1 says it this way. God is light And in him, the Bible says, is no darkness, none at all. There's no darkness, no no darkness at all in this God. He is pure, only pure, always pure. 
He's holy. And this is why he requires holiness from his people. And from these laws, we also learn that God is just and his justice is perfect. It's not the imperfect justice that we so often see in this world. It's not misguided justice. It's perfect justice. He requires the guilty to be punished. He forbids the innocent to be punished. You find this from the lips of God in Ezekiel 18 verse 4. He says, the soul who sins shall die. You know how many people in this world don't believe in a God like that? That, that God would ever punish a sinner. And yet God says in his word, the soul who sins will die. He's a God of justice, a God of holiness. Not like we think him to be. He is the holy one. And you know, one of the most powerful motives to sanctification that Christians can enter into. That, and, and by sanctification, I mean, man, I really want to obey the word of God. I really want to bring my life into conformity with Holy Scripture, one of the most powerful motivations is to behold what God is like in Scripture and to make this connection with your conduct. You see, God is compassionate, God is pure, and God is just. And then you have this desire to use your life, and I mean your whole life, every aspect of your life, to show, man, I want to show what God is like in this world. In other words, my conduct is not just my conduct. It's revealing something about my Father in heaven that my deeds can cause men and women to glorify my Father who is in heaven. And I want to exhort you to that today. Brothers and sisters, let's show the world what God is like. Let's show the world what God is like. And if God is compassionate and merciful and pure and just, then you go be compassionate and merciful and pure and just and show the world who their king is. Now, we do this imperfectly, even on our best days, but Jesus Christ did that perfectly. He showed the world what God was like the Bible says he is the word he is the image of the invisible God in other words to see and behold the Lord Jesus Christ was to see and behold God and what we have in our Lord Jesus is the perfect embodiment of these attributes of God perfect embodiment of God's compassion the perfect embodiment of God's purity and God's justice. You see the compassion in Jesus' ministry to the oppressed. He cared for them. He didn't pass by, by them. When they cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He healed them. He loved, he loved the poor. He loved the needy. And as he did that, you saw what God was like. God, that's what the Father is like. If this is what the Son is like. You see, holiness... And Jesus' refusal to sin in the wilderness. He's taken to the very end of, of human constitution. 40-day fast, 40-day no food and water. Tempted by the devil in the wilderness. And we learn that Jesus would rather starve than sin. He's pure. He's light. No darkness at all. You see justice and his substitutionary death in our place. The guilty are punished by Christ taking on our sins and being nailed in his body to the tree. And so in these laws in Deuteronomy 23 and 24, we, they find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. In other words, once we see God's concern for the needy, the, the, the poor, the hungry, the slave... That ultimate manifestation of God's love for the needy is revealed to us in the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate manifestation in providing for our, our ultimate and eternal needs. In other words, God gave you more than interest-free loans, as good as that would be, and having all the grapes you wanted if you were hungry. 
God gave you more than that. He did more than protect you from rich oppressors. God gave you the best gift you could possibly imagine. God has provided for you in the ultimate and eternal way. God gave you his son. The Bible says he did not withhold the best of gifts. He gave you the best thing he could possibly give you. He gave you himself. He did not withhold his only son. We see the perfect manifestation of God's provision for the needy in the gift of Jesus Christ. And just like the, sl- the fleeing slave found refuge in Israel, Jesus Christ offers refuge to all who have, who have escaped slavery to sin and Satan. We find a refuge in Christ. The days of tyranny... The days of oppression, the days of living under that taskmaster, King Sin, King Satan, they're over. Jesus has brought us in. Jesus has become our refuge. Now in saying these laws find their fulfillment in Christ, it is not as though Christ fulfilled them and we don't obey them anymore. Okay, We do obey them. We do live lives of compassion. We do live lives of purity and justice. We take up these principles and we show the world what God is like, yet we do that in a uniquely distinct way, a Christian way. I want you to notice twice in this passage, once in verse 18 and again in verse 22, Israel is called to remember something. And that ought to be familiar, man. Why do we keep seeing this in the Bible? God's people, they're supposed to be going forward, and God keeps telling them to look backwards. Remember, verse 18, You shall remember you were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Verse 22 again, You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. And so they were called to remember their deliverance, their redemption. And brothers and sisters, so are we. Just like they were called to look backwards and remember their deliverance from Egypt, Christians are called to remember our deliverance from sin. Do we pursue obedience? Yes, we do. But we pursue that obedience as those who have already been redeemed. Those who have already been saved by Jesus Christ? Do we strive to show the world what God is like, that God is compassionate, pure, and just? Yes, we do. But we do it while we're standing on the gospel of Jesus Christ, clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ, remembering that Christ has already redeemed me from sin. And that and only that glorifies God. That and only that can be called Christian obedience. And let's make that our aim this morning, walking away from God's word. To obey God in a distinctly Christian way, remembering that our God has redeemed us in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. God, we pray that you would give us grace this morning that you would draw our attention and our affections towards the saving work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would move our souls to obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.